This morning, as I mentioned earlier, before we prayed, we're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be unpacking verses 7 to 11, where Jesus is starting to wind up his Sermon on the Mount. It's been a sermon all about the kingdom. Matthew had told us before this sermon, uh, in, the, in the passage of Matthew, just before the sermon starts, Matthew had told us that Jesus had been going around the, 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 the areas near where he grew up and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And here... In this sermon, we've gotten a little window into what that gospel included. What's good news about the fact that Jesus has come and about the new world Jesus is going to build? And the kingdom focus that Jesus has given us all through this sermon, including the passage we're going to look at today, it hasn't been so much about the rights of citizens in the kingdom or the laws that govern the kingdom. It hasn't been the kind of political stuff you'd expect with somebody who's rolling out a new platform for society. It's been more about relationships. If you track back through everything Jesus has talked about, you'll see that two themes go through all of it, tie it all together. He's talking about the character of the people who are in the kingdom as that character shows up in the way they relate to each other and in the way they relate to God. He's been going back and forth between these two kinds of relationships, but that's been the theme all throughout. What kind of character shows up in these citizens' lives in their relationships with one another and in their relationship with God. Last week, we looked at a passage where he was talking about the character of kingdom citizens when they relate to one another. They don't judge each other. They don't think that, they're, that they have the kind of perspective they would need to stand in judgment over anybody. They know they're not worthy of it, and they know they don't see everything that they would need to see in order to make good judgments. They leave that to God, and they are for one another. Now he switches back to relationship with God. What kind of relationship do you have with the king? if you're a part of this kingdom. And it's a surprising relationship, that's for sure. Would have been surprising in Jesus' day, given the understanding of God that he was working with, and I think it's even surprising today. Here the focus is on what kind of access you have to the king if you're in the kingdom Jesus has come to establish. The kind of access you have to this king is the kind of access a beloved child has to its father. You are invited to ask him anything. That's Jesus' point. It's that simple. We're going to unpack it together, but but that's it. In this kingdom, you are invited to ask the king anything. Because this king is also your father. Now, what I want to do is read the text. I want to unpack the promise Jesus makes, spend most of our time looking at how he guarantees that promise, and then come back to this issue of the invitation Jesus is offering us, that he's offering you an invitation to ask for anything with confidence. I want to begin by reading the passage. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? This is God's Word. You can be seated. 
I want to make sure at first, before we go any further, I want to make sure you guys get the promise that's involved here. It is what it sounds like. And it's an extravagant promise. It's one of those promises that you immediately assume has got to be qualified somehow. He just lays it out there in in this incredibly strong language. It sounds more like the material of one of those midday or late night infomercial kind of commercials where somebody's selling legal help, a nice toupee and a recent facelift or some sort of super absorbent mop or some such. It it comes with that kind of oomph that you just know can't be true, can it? Only here it's Jesus who makes the promise. And he promises that when you ask, you receive. And when you seek, you find. And when you knock, it's open. That's what he promises. Period. Did you notice how verses 7 and 8 form this kind of parallel structure where he gives you three commands in verse 7? Ask, seek, knock. And then in verse 8, he tells you what happens when you do. The one who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks will have it open. The point here is that Jesus... It's putting the emphasis on the promise, not on the the command even. The command is there. We're going to talk about the command a little later. He is telling you, you should be asking, you should be seeking, but he's really wanting to draw your eyes to the promise that when you do, you get what you ask for. When you seek, you find what you're looking for. And when you knock, you get the access that you need. He's talking about a direct relationship with God and the full enjoyment of all his resources. It's there for the taking. So what do we do with this promise? I mean, our minds, my mind, immediately starts running to what it can't mean, right? I mean, it can't mean you can really ask for anything. I mean, this whole sermon has been about telling you the difference between good things that you should want and bad things that you shouldn't want. It's always distinguishing. Jesus has been saying this, not that, this, not that, this, not that, over and over again. So if you ask for one of the things Jesus has told you is not good for you, you shouldn't expect that God would give it to you. We know it can't mean anything. For example, he told us in chapter 6 that we shouldn't serve God and mammon. That it's a fundamental divide between those who serve God and those who serve money. And Jesus is saying one is good for you, one leads to destruction. So if you ask for something that's going to enable your service to this false God, you you can't expect God is going to give you that. So what does it mean? Why should we believe it's true? I think that's another question that all of us ask of texts like this. It sounds great. It hasn't been my experience. Why should I believe that if I ask of God or seek Him or knock that I will get what I'm asking for or what I'm looking for? Why should I believe it's true? Because it, it does sound a little too good to be true. Jesus knew that those questions were coming. He knew that we'd be prone to wonder if God is really there. That if he is there, we'd wonder whether he cares enough to listen to us. And given the, given the scale of the world, given what the Bible says about God, about his responsibility for everything that is, for every person on the face of the earth, now and through all time, given the scale of his operational responsibility, it would be, a, it would be presumptuous of us to assume that he has time to hear from us about the bad day that we're having. So for the rest of this section, Jesus offers us a guarantee 
for the promise that he's just made. He knows we'd wonder what he means by it. He knows we'd wonder why we should believe it's true. And so he explains it. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Verses 9 to 11 give us the guarantee for this promise. Why should I assume when I ask something that I'll receive what I've asked for? The only reason I should assume that, according to Jesus, is because of who I'm speaking to and who he is to me. The reason I should expect that when I ask from him, I will receive from him, has everything to do with who it is I'm asking and with who he is to me. Read verses 9 to 11 again with me. Which one of you, Jesus says, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? It's another one of those how much more arguments we saw in chapter 6. If you're evil and you wouldn't give your son a stone when he asked for bread, and you wouldn't give your son a serpent when he asked for a fish, and you're evil and selfish and have all sorts of conflicting motives in, in your relationship, even with your children, and if you would love them well, how much more God? He's using another one of these how much more arguments. Once again, he takes a human example, something we know from experience and shows how much more it applies to God. Kind of, I, I see him almost doing what's, what the Godfather movies did for a lot of people. Trying to humanize these villains, you know, these arch villains, these these violent, this this violent culture that everyone has associated with just barbarity and savagery and and and, and bloodthirstiness, and, and these movies show show these mobsters loving their children, you know, taking care of them, being tender towards them in family moments, sitting together around having nice meals. They humanize them. That was one of the main responses to those movies when they came out forty years ago or however long ago it was. It's something that others have noticed in other times and places. Like people love their own. I mean, even, no matter how barbaric they might be in treating outsiders, inside the confines of the family where you feel attachment, people love their own. That's what Jesus is drawing from. We know that it's true. How much more would it be true for God, who isn't evil, who isn't limited in understanding or power, who has no need to use us for his own gratification, how much more would it be true of this God that he would give good things to the children that he loves? Jesus builds his promise that if you ask, you receive on the character of God, on his identity, especially who he is to those who trust him. And the key phrase in verse 11 I think this phrase captures everything else Jesus is trying to say about why you should expect to get what you ask for. Is the phrase, Father who is in heaven. He started the Lord's Prayer with it. This language has come up before. It's the linchpin for what he's saying here. You ask and receive. You seek and you find. You knock and it's opened because he's a Father who is in heaven. I want to go deeper here. I want to, I, want to, I want to pry into these details. This Father in heaven description is the key, guarantee for the promise Jesus has just made. There's two things implied in this portrait of God. Two reasons Jesus can make the promise he's made that when we ask, we receive. And everything has to do with the fact that he's Father in heaven. Okay? Let me, let me unpack this some more. We're going to go a little deeper. 
that he's Father in heaven means, first of all, that he's accessible and powerful. Father in heaven means he's accessible to you and he's powerful enough to help you. Those things have to be true for Jesus to be able to say, ask and you receive. Sometimes when you have a need or a problem, what, what you depend on is someone who's not on your level. You don't need peer help sometimes. Sometimes what you need is someone who's above you. Maybe they have more experience. They have more strings that they can pull. They're put in the right positions, a position of influence or power that you don't have. Maybe it's somebody at work, a, an advisor, an attending physician, a colleague in your field who's got more experience, whatever. Sometimes what you need is what you don't already have and what your, your peers aren't likely to have. You need access to someone who's above you, right? But the problem is you often feel like you're imposing on somebody like that. You're not really sure you have a right to depend on them. Now, some of you guys don't have any idea what I'm talking about. You have a ton of confidence, and you always feel at home and comfortable wherever you are. You command every room. I know there's at least a couple of you guys out there. It's got to be. But most of us don't interact with the world that way. Most of us are, can be kind of neurotic about how, where we stand and what people are thinking about us and, and what will they do if I text them again or if I ask for another meeting. So if you've, if you've got this person who's above you that you really need, you're probably going to be on shaky ground, feeling a little inferior maybe or a little unworthy or like you're a nuisance, especially if you have nothing to offer them in return. If they're high enough to actually help you, then they're probably high enough to where you don't feel comfortable imposing on them. You feel like a bother when you approach them. Maybe you can get one meeting if you're fortunate, but the, the freedom to text them on a whim or the freedom to, to, to I don't know, swap emails regularly or pop your head in the door when you have a need come up, Probably not. It's a tough position to be in. Maybe with a peer, you're comfortable enough to feel like you're not a nuisance, but they're not able to help you out. You need someone powerful who's also approachable. That's where Jesus' promise becomes so sweet to us. Here we're told to come again. Come, come again, come again, come again. Come early and often. Come honestly, holding nothing back. Ask, seek, knock. Because when you come, you come to what you really need. What you really need is a father in heaven. A father who knows you with a discriminating love. Who knows exactly who you are and what's going on in your life. Who pays the same kind of attention that any healthy father or mother would pay to their children. He pays that to you. But who is in heaven. Not limited by our scope, by our horizons or our understanding of what's best. We're told to ask like a child who has no other options and has complete confidence in their provider. One commentator, I don't know if this is a good way to read this, but I liked it, so I'm going to tell you about it. One commentator, he described this description of ask and seek and knock, that sequence. It's kind of based on the way kids are. I don't know if that's what Jesus had in mind, but it's certainly true to my experience. Kids ask if their parents are right there around them. And they ask, and they ask, and they ask. They have immediate, if they have immediate access to their parents, if they're in their presence, the questions don't stop. They don't filter them. They don't think carefully about whether they're reasonable. They just ask. This is especially true in my home with the way that my boys relate to their mother. I mean, I can, I'm like chopped liver. I can be sitting there 
and they'll go to a different room to find her to ask her for something because she has that kind of relationship with them. They, they know they can depend on her in a special way. And they'll ask her constantly, all day, for the things that they need or want. And they don't care whether or not it, may or it is or isn't appropriate. And if she's not around, they search thoroughly, room to room. I mean, these two boys are like a SWAT team. I mean, clearing, that's the way I imagine their pursuit of their mother. They, they're kind of clearing rooms. So one of them will go through the room, clear, clear. The next one's in the next room, clear, clear. Where's she at? I don't know. She's not here. And then if they happen to find her and she's behind a closed door, well, they aren't old enough yet to kick it in, but they wouldn't be above it if they could, no matter what room it might happen to be. The point is a child is relentless. They're honest. They're desperate. And they do whatever it takes to get access to the one that they know they can't do without. And there's a kind of honor in that. It's exhausting, but there's a kind of honor in that. In being the one apart from whom they can't thrive. And God feels that honor when his children hound him. When they feel his presence and ask him without filtering what they need. When they don't feel his presence and they seek him room to room like a SWAT team on a mission. When they feel some sort of barrier between them and him and they pound on it and won't relent until they see him. He gets honored in that because what he is told by us in that seeking of him is that we can't do without him. He's it. He's everything. Apart from him, we're desperate and hopeless. And if we receive our children when they pursue us like this, despite our limited patience, our depleted energy, all the conflicting selfish desires that war in our hearts, how much more will our Father in heaven, who never slumbers or sleeps, who never grows tired or looks the other way, who rules over all but knows the hairs on every head of every one of his children, how much more will he invite, even plead, with his children to bring them, bring him everything, to ask with the confidence that he'll provide? Why should we believe that if we ask God, we'll get what we ask for? Because he's a father in heaven. That means he's accessible to us and he's powerful. There's another layer to his identity here that's key. It comes out in these same verses. It's huge for why Jesus can make this promise. It's a huge part of the guarantee for the promise. He's father in heaven. That means he's also loving and wise. He has the loving affection of a father who is for his children. He has the wisdom of heaven that no earthly father, no matter how excellent, can compete with or find. He has the love that wants what's best for his children and the wisdom to know what's best for his children. He is the father in heaven who, when you ask of him, will deliver for you. Now, this is where I think we've got to stop for a moment and push deeper into one of the instinctive problems we have with this passage. Sometimes we balk at the promise of anything. Ask what you will, and it'll be granted. That, that, we balk at that promise because we've all asked for things that we haven't been given. 
haven't we? Even, even reasonable things. It's not like we've been asking for 5,000 square foot oceanfront properties. We've been asking for things like freedom from pain or sickness. We've asked for the joy of Christian marriage. We've asked to feel his presence in our lives when we don't. And because it hasn't seemed to us that these requests are always answered... We can hear promises like the one Jesus has just made. And they feel more alienating to us than they do winsome. They push us away rather than draw us in. We think, yeah, I've tried that. I've been down that road. It doesn't end where Jesus says it does. It's not for me. But it shouldn't have that effect on us. The promise that Jesus is making is, has a context to it. It isn't a universal promise. That would be horribly destructive for us. If it were a promise that God hears what we ask for and then is obligated to give us exactly what we've asked for, that would be horribly destructive for us. It isn't that kind of promise. The promise is that he gives good gifts and he knows the difference between things we ask for that are good for us and things we ask for that aren't. The promise has a context, and the context is God being a father who is in heaven. To know what Jesus means by this promise, you have to know who it is he's making a promise about, and the fact that he's a father in heaven, which means that he is loving, and wants what's best for us, but wise, and knows what that is. So, let me go a little further here. God is a father who gives good gifts, not a machine who does what we tell him. Think about this. If he were a machine who does what we tell him, if Jesus' promise had no sort of qualification to it, just uh, ask what you want, you're going to get it, we would have to be really, really careful what we ask for, wouldn't we? He might give it to us, and that might be a far cry from what's good for us. We all know this because that's the way kids ask, right? They're profligate in their asking, they're not discriminating. They just ask. And it's appropriate that they should be. But they ask for a lot of things that would hurt them. Jesus is saying in verse 10 and 11 that God is not the kind of father who gives his children serpents. He won't give them things that are going to hurt them, even if they ask for it. And that is not the kind of exception that takes all the steam out of this promise. It's not one of these exceptions that makes the promise itself useless and empty. Like, well, why should I even worry with it then if he's just going to do what he's going to do? And No, no, actually, I think it's a liberating truth that empowers us to embrace Jesus' promise. You can ask what you want because he's not limited in his ability to care for you by your ability to see what's best for you. Let me say that again. The reason you can come to him and just ask, just like Jesus says, just bring it all to him without worrying about it at all, without stressing about the big picture, the reason you just come to him and ask him, like a kid does, is that you know he's a father who's also in heaven. He loves you, wants what's best for you. He's wise enough to know what's best for you, and he'll only give you good gifts. He won't give you the things that might harm you, that would be less than what he wants for you. He isn't limited in his ability to care for you by your ability to see what's best for you. I've used this analogy before, Forgive me for using it again. I just think it works so well. Think back, if you can, to your 15-year-old self. What did your 15-year-old self want from life? 
If you had had an Aladdin kind of moment and a genie had popped up and you could have asked that genie for the life that you wanted when you were 15, what would it have involved? How happy would you be with it now? What about when you were 20 or 25? Maybe 30 or 35? Would would this be a life that you would be happy with now? I know you're thinking, well, no, I didn't know what I know now. Oh, so now you've got everything figured out. Now is the perfect version of you that can ask and get exactly what they need from now to the end of time. No, we just don't have that kind of perspective on things. See, the, the, the people Jesus was, is, is constantly contrasting his kingdom with, one of the groups of people are the pagans or the Gentiles who, whose view of God was very machine-like, that you had to try to figure out what this God wanted from you And if you gave it to them, it would win you some favor. They would then give you what you asked for. So offer the right sacrifice or perform the right duty or observe the right feast or whatever. Figure out what this God was into. Give it to them. And then they would give you what you want. That was this pagan view of God that he's constantly saying, no, not that. Well, in that view of God, you had to know what was best for yourself. Because that deity is not paying a whole lot of attention to your life. They're using you to get what they want. It's just an exchange. They're a tool that depends on your skill to be used well. Now imagine if you gave a tool, like a universal promise of a yes answer to any question that was asked to the hands of somebody who didn't know how to use it well. Wouldn't that be like giving a fully functional, well-oiled chainsaw to a toddler just because he wanted it. Powerful tool. Incredibly destructive in the hands of someone who doesn't know how to use it. If that tool given to a toddler, bound to do whatever that toddler asked of it, that's, that's a deadly situation. And that is not how this God operates. Not a father in heaven. So ask away. Ask whatever you want. Don't try to filter yourself. Don't try to micromanage your future. Just ask them. Because he only gives good gifts to his children. It's not a disincentive to asking that we won't get exactly what we ask for, exactly what we think is best for our lives. It's a powerful incentive to ask. Because we can trust him to do what's right. He's our father in heaven. That's the guarantee. The promise is that you can ask, you can seek, you can knock, you're going to get, you're going to find. It's going to be open. The guarantee is because you're coming to your father who is in heaven. He loves you. He knows what's best and nothing can limit his power to deliver for those that he loves. So that's why you should do it. I want to circle back around here for the last couple minutes. And press home this invitation that's embedded in this promise and in this guarantee. It is an invitation for every single one of you. I just want to think for a minute together, reflect for a minute on what sort of invitation this is. This is an invitation for you to come to him. That's where I want to start. It's an invitation for you. That's for every one of you. Everybody sitting there. I don't care what you've done. Maybe this is your first time to even walk into a church service and you've been weirded out by this whole thing and you think, and you figured out by this point, no, this is not for me. 
these people don't have the kind of issues that I have in my life. If they only knew, they probably wouldn't have let me in the door. Maybe that's what you're thinking. I mean, let me, let me, let me, go, ahead, let me go ahead and take that off the table right now. This is a promise for you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. The only people who get access like this to a Father in heaven are those who are in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who has ever deserved to relate to God like this. And the promise of the gospel is that anybody, no matter what they've done, can have Jesus stand for them. His death can remove the penalty of your sin. His life can be a life of intercession for you, where he wraps you up so that when God looks at you, what God sees is Jesus. Not who you were, not what you've done, but Jesus. And in Jesus, you deserve this access to the Father. Jesus earned it. He paid for it fully, and he gives it to anybody who wants it. The only thing you've got to be, if you want this kind of access to the Father, is desperate. That's the only qualification. You've got to recognize that you are the child in the analogy I used earlier, that you have no other recourse but to ask. And if you don't seem to be close enough, you you seek. And if you, you can't seem to find them or if there's some sort of barrier, you knock and you pound and you try to break through because you're desperate and you have no other options. That's the only thing that's got to be true of you. So are you desperate? If so, ask and you will receive. Seek and you're going to find. Knock and you, you, no matter who you are, you will have the door to the throne room of heaven open for you through Jesus. But you've got to be desperate. So if you're angry at God for not hearing you to this point, if you think that you deserve more from life than what you're getting, friend, that's a sign that you aren't desperate enough. You actually don't realize what you fully and truly deserve. All of us deserve death and nothing more for our rebellion against God. What he's offered you here is a new life. And if you're helpless enough to grab it, it's all yours. He's inviting you to come to him. Friends, he's also inviting you to come to him relentlessly. I think we're meant to see that out of that sequence. Even if that sequence of asking and seeking and knocking has nothing to do with the way that children hound their parents, uh, I do think it's supposed to create this sort of building crescendo of relentlessness that you just come for him and you 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 never stop because you know you don't have any other choices. If you're giving up quickly, it's because you're not desperate enough to know that you have nowhere else to turn. Once you're desperate enough, you know you can't give up. You don't have the option of giving up because this is your only hope. So ask him. And if you don't get an answer that you can see, seek him. And if you recognize a barrier between you, knock on it, pound on it, throw your shoulder into it, do whatever you've got to do, but you've got to keep coming back to him over and over and over. Jesus is saying, ask like your life depended on it. Because guess what? Your life depends on it. He's inviting you to come relentlessly. He's inviting you to come honestly. You don't have to worry about asking for the wrong thing. We just talked about this a little bit. I don't need to say much more. You don't have to worry about asking for the wrong thing. You can trust him to give you what's good for you. You don't have to worry about overstaying your welcome. He's your father who longs to have you in his presence. You don't have to worry about pestering him. He gave up Jesus for you. You think you can pester a God who would do that? Don't worry about being presumptuous 
Because this is the God who took on flesh. Just ask. Just seek him. Just knock. Don't overthink it. He's not a father that you need to fear. He's encouraging us here. Jesus is encouraging us here to an instinctive, knee-jerk, profligate kind of prayer where everything that's on our radar is also in our prayer life. Stop your inner churning over whatever it is that's weighing you down this morning. Stop your inner churning over it and just pray to him about it. Hold nothing back. And finally, he's inviting you to come to him for the kingdom. He's inviting you to come to him. He's inviting you to come to him relentlessly. He's inviting you to come to him honestly, holding nothing back. But he's also, in the context of this sermon, he's inviting you to come to him for the kingdom. We should feel free to ask him anything we want to. Don't filter, don't worry about whether it's worthy or not. But in the context of this sermon, he's also wanting us to have a certain set of things that we want. He wants us hungering after righteousness. He wants us to want to be poor in spirit. He wants us to want to be meek, people who aren't always getting offended by people and expecting to be treated better than they are. He wants us to want the character of the kingdom. So in your profligate asking of him, why don't you take Matthew chapter 5 and look at the first 12 verses of that chapter and use that as a structure for your asking. And if you're not seem to be hearing anything, then seek him more diligently. And if, you, if, if it seems like you can't get through to him, pound on the door. I don't know what you got to do. What you got to do. Take Matthew 5, the first 12 verses, and use those as your template for the kind of prayer Jesus is calling for here. And you can have the promise when you do that. Not just that, that he will hear you and receive you, but that you will be aligning what you want with what he wants. He will never turn away a child who asks for more humility, who asks for more meekness, more mercy, for a better record of peacemaking. He will never turn away a child who asks for the things that he wants to see most in them. So he's inviting you to come to him for the kingdom. Friends, you can pray with me that this will be the kind of culture we build together in our church, that we're just constantly asking because we trust that our Father in heaven will never turn us away. Let's pray to him now. Father, thank you for Christ whose work for us is so perfect, so beautiful and worthy that we don't have to do anything to add to it except grab it and make use of it. We pray that you would help us to treat you like you are a father in heaven who loves us. Not a machine who's there to do our bidding or be dispensed with, thrown on the trash heap. Not some sort of high and unapproachable deity who's not concerned about the details of our day. We want to come to you as a Father who is in heaven, who loves us, knows what's best for us, will always do it. Help us to come to you as if you have laid down the life of your Son so that we could be taken up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.